Well, I want to say one more time, good morning. And it's good to be preaching with you today. Uh, Pastor Steve is back, and we really we thank you so much, and we covet your prayers over the last week um, as he was at the Mayo Clinic. He did get some good news, um, so we're looking forward. I'm going to let him share what he wants to share with you all, um, but uh, we're looking forward to having him back next week. Um, and I want to thank our praise band and Dr. Mark Lindstrom for kind of, uh, for, for, for worshiping, for leading worship with us and preaching last week. Dr. Mark Lindstrom um, is our district superintendent, and I tuned in last week while I was on vacation. He did a great job. Um, we're going to talk a little bit more about uh, what he spoke on last week. We're going to kind of expound on that um, today. But I want to jump right in, because today I want us to wrestle with one of the most difficult, one of the most well-known um, and maybe one of the most ignored stories of Christ that we read in the New Testament. Um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn with me to Mark 10. It'll be on the screen as well. And as I said, uh, Dr. Mark Lindstrom last week in his sermon, he talked about the crucifixion of Christ. And he answered some questions for us. He, he answered the questions about the death of Christ. What did it do and what did it give us? His first two points of that sermon were that through the crucifixion, Christ provided healing for broken relationships, both with God and with people. And now, today, I want us to ask ourselves the question of what's next while going backwards in the story of Jesus. In other words, if, if the death of Christ brought us healed relationships with God and healed relationships with people, then to, learn what, uh, then to learn what to do with that grace and what to do with these mended relationships, we must look at the life of Christ. So today, after seeing what Christ did for us on the cross, we're now going to look at what Christ told us to do in his life. Let's go to our scripture right now. We're going to be looking at Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And it says this, As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good, Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud and honor your father and mother. Teacher, the man declared, all of these I've kept since I was a boy. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and, and, and loved him. I want you to underline that. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. This is verse 23. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, Children, he calls them children. How hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 26, the disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man... This is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Verse 28, then Peter spoke up. We've left everything to follow you. 29, truly I tell you, Jesus said, no one who has left home 
or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Let's pray. Dear God, this morning we come before this, this difficult, this radical, this, this challenging scripture, this challenging word of Jesus, God. One that, one that we may have shied away from or just skimmed over as, as we've read our Bibles throughout our life, Lord. But this morning, I pray that we come before this scripture, we come before the word of Christ, not with a hardened heart, but with an open one. God, willing to learn, willing to, uh, to open ourselves up to your grace, to your mercy, um, to allow ourselves to become more like Christ. And we ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, I am almost sure that all of us have at least heard of this story before. Um, it's one of the most radical stories of Jesus that we see in, in the Gospels. Even if, even if we didn't grow up in church or if you're unfamiliar with uh, some of the biblical stories, then you've probably at least heard this story referred to at some point in time uh, in your life. It's a story that's in, in included in three out of the four gospel books. It's here in Mark, but it's also found in Matthew and in Luke. And what's interesting about the story and the, and the way that it's told in the three different gospels is that it's told nearly identically in each one. And that doesn't happen very often. Usually the authors would, would put a different spin on it, or they might tell the story a different way, they might have a different interpretation, but it's told nearly identically in each of the three gospel books um, that it's written about. So it's clear when we study the life of Jesus that this is an important moment. It's a moment that should be communicated clearly as essential to who Christ was. But if this story is essential for us to know and to understand who Jesus was, then why when we read it do we kind of shy away from it? Do we get uncomfortable? We get a little nervous. We, we, kind, of, we kind of go, mm, I, don't, I, just, I, I don't really know about it, that. How is it that we have somehow taken this clear call towards generosity and instead we've, we've twisted it to mean um, something different? Christ is clear here in Mark chapter, seven, or chapter 10, verses 17 through 21. There is a tension between discipleship and wealth that cannot be ignored. But Christians and preachers and pastors have circumvented this topic for centuries. Instead, uh, we've decided to interpret so many different ways, uh, saying that this call was only for this one man. It's just for him. Or it's only a calling that the first, very first disciples were, were called to live into. You may have even heard about the, uh, the eye of the needle gate that was in Jerusalem that a, a camel couldn't fit through. And I was surprised as I was researching this passage that even that is a misinterpretation of what Jesus was saying here. There was actually no eye of the needle gate. I know, you're shocked. You've heard that all your life. I have too. I was like, whoa. So I had to Google it. And sure enough, Google said the same thing. But what, what happened there was with, with their really no eye of the needle gate was instead they took this metaphor that Jesus said was an impossibility. He was talking about a literal camel and a literal eye of a needle and instead changed it to something that was just extremely difficult but not impossible. So this passage, as we look at it, as this literal metaphor, 
should bring us to a better understanding of the debate of salvation, of faith versus works. You've probably heard this. Christ makes it clear here in chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. And over and over again throughout Mark, throughout Luke, throughout Matthew, and even throughout John, Christ makes it clear that faith without works is no faith at all. Belief in Christ without the love of Christ is no belief at all. It's simply empty hypocrisy. So why do we come to this passage in Mark? Why not go to Luke, where the themes of love and and generosity for the poor are saturated all throughout Luke? That that was the one thing that Luke really hits on, is generosity and and giving um, to the poor, all the the way throughout. If you read the gospel like a sermon, that's the topic of the sermon um, in Luke. Or why don't we go to, to the passage in Matthew, which if you read Matthew like a sermon, there's a focus on what the kingdom of God looks like. So why Mark? Well, we come to Mark for a multitude of reasons. One being the fact that it's actually the first gospel that was ever written. And Matthew and Luke actually were written using Mark Mark as a key source for their depiction of Jesus. Another reason that 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 I chose Mark is because here the author is able to weave this story into the larger larger narrative of Christ in such a way that shows the core characteristics of being a Christian. I talked about the themes of Luke and the themes of of Matthew. But if you sit down and and you read the entire book of Mark, which is the shortest gospel, it's really easy uh, to kind of just sit down and read in one setting. And I'm kind of hinting at If you want to do that this afternoon, you can in like an hour, hour and a half tops. But throughout the gospel of Mark, the author clearly portrays these three characteristics of those who follow Christ. If you want to write these down, these are the main themes of Mark. Number one, Christ followers are countercultural. The second theme is this, Christ followers have a childlike dependence on God. Now, if you have your Bible open, I want you to look just to the passage right before this one that we're looking at, where verse 16 ends. It's it's about the children that come to God. And even here in this passage, Christ calls the disciples what? Children. And the third theme is this, that Christ followers resist the deceitfulness of wealth. And all of this is present here in this passage. So what I hope for us today is the same thing that I prayed. I hope that we don't approach this passage this morning with resistance or with a hardened heart, but instead that we come before it willing to allow God to mold us into a more perfect image of Christ. I pray that a lot. When I, when I finish worship, before I, before I preach, after I read scripture, I pray, God, may you use this to mold us into a, a more perfect image of Christ. And I do that because why else are we here? What are we here for? That's our one goal of coming as, together as the body of Christ is to look more like Jesus. And that's our goal this morning. Now, I have an an inquisitive mind, and that's not to say that I think I'm intelligent or curious, but more so I am nosy. I like to uh, answer questions more than I like to just give definitive statements. 
Um, So when I prepare my sermons, I often organize the points of a sermon not in statements, but in questions that can be answered by the passage or that are left unanswered. And that's, that's kind of how I read the Bible, is I'll read through and I'll write down either a question that was answered or a question that was left unanswered through the Scripture. And this sermon is no different. There's three questions that we're going to answer this morning based on this passage. And they're tough ones. The first one is this. Number one, what do we give up? Now the answer to this question seems clear from the passage. Jesus gives the answer to this simply when he tells the man in verse 21, One thing you lack, Christ said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure, treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. Jesus tell, tells him here to sell all that he has. Sell everything, all of his possessions. But the answer is a little more complicated than that, because if we look to the remainder of the passage, it tells us something different. Christ tells us through the, the conversation with the disciples later that it isn't just money that this man and the disciples were asked to give up to follow Jesus. But Peter says it best when he says here in verse 28, Then Peter spoke up, we have left everything to follow you. Christ then lists the things that they have given up, the things that they've left behind to follow Jesus. He says that they've left home. They've left brothers and sisters. They've left mother and father. They've left children and fields. They came to Christ with a clean slate. They came to Jesus with literally nothing completely reliant on him. And as the passage before this one reminds us, they came to Christ as children with nothing but dependence. This illustrates in this graphic manner Christ is telling them the full commitment that is required of us as Christians. Now we are still in the Easter season. The church um, around the world is still celebrating uh, Christ's resurrection And through Dr. Lindstrom's message last week, we were reminded of the great sacrifice that was given to us and what came about because of that sacrifice. And we know that as Christians, in the same way that Christ sacrificed himself for us, we are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice. That's in Romans 12. And what that means, if we were to offer ourselves, lay our own lives down as a living sacrifice, what that means if we're, is if we're going to give everything we have up for the gospel, then we don't hesitate to give to those who are less fortunate than us. We don't hesitate to sacrifice our own comfort for the benefit of others. This means that we live our lives daily in search of opportunities to give more of ourselves to someone else. Kindness? Absolutely. Charity? You bet. Housing, food, clothing? That is made abundantly clear throughout the Bible. We are called to live sacrificially because the resources that we have are not our own. All of what we have is God's. All of what we have is His alone. So we are called to give it up for the sake of the gospel. And we're called to do that, and I want you to hear me when I say this. Because if we, if we live out the gospel, if we live out the message of Christ in a way that isn't good news for the poor, in a way that isn't good news for, for the minority, for the immigrant, for the marginalized, then is it good news at all? 
Now this brings us to the second question that I had when reading the passage. Number two, why give it to the poor? And I had to keep this one in here. I almost took it out because it really, it, you really kind of have to go, it, this, it doesn't really answer it here, but it kind of makes you question it. He says give everything to the poor, so in my mind I immediately ask, well, why, why give it to the poor? And I think that visiting this question in light of this passage is vital. It's vital to who we are as Christ followers. Because the calling to give up all we have to those who have less is an integral part of the Christian calling and the Christian lifestyle. Jesus makes it clear in the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew 25, whatever you have done for the least of these, you have done for me. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 17, this tells us the same. This isn't Christ speaking. But it says this, How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need, yet refuses help? It's clear when reading through the New Testament that God has a deep love for the poor. It's clear even in the passage we've read today, the last will be first. And so why give it to the poor? Because God puts the poor at the center of the gospel. Yet again, somehow we've shied away from this fact, or we've twisted it around. Instead of being countercultural. In loving the poor, no matter their circumstances, we have fallen into the trap of the prosperity gospel. We've let ourselves believe that God makes good things happen to good people and he lets bad things happen um, to bad people. So the poor, those that are experiencing poverty or drug addiction and sickness, are only made that way because of the decisions that they've made. We tell ourselves that they're in poverty due to laziness or ignorance or a lack of work ethic. But this is far from the truth, and it isn't how God viewed the poor, the sick, and the addicted either. When you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus spent his entire ministry serving those who had nothing. Never once do you read Christ telling someone to pull themselves up by their own bootstraps. Instead, He healed them, he gave them food to eat, and he spent more time with the poor and with sinners than he did with the wealthy and the righteous. That's because Jesus realized that the poor aren't in poverty because they're sinners. They're poor because they've been sinned against. They experience poverty because of the situations that they were born into, because they were born into a world that was designed to make the rich richer and the poor poorer. They were born into a society that puts value on skin color, on pedigree, and on social standing. We see others and we assume that they were afforded the same privileges that we were. Or we see obstacles that we ourselves overcame in our lives and we believe that we were able to do it on our own. But we overlook the ways that we were supported throughout it. Really, my friends, we were born in a world that is saturated with sin. And sadly, some of us, or some, are forced to bear the weight of that sin more than the rest of us. Christ loved the poor unconditionally. And he calls us here to do the same. No excuses. No trying to to misinterpret their struggles as, as their own fault. 
But instead, we are called to love them unconditionally and to work against the culture that keeps them marginalized and disregarded. Now, I know that this passage is is radical. It's tough. And my uh, my initial reaction every time I've read this passage throughout my life has been to kind of approach it with this teenage angst. To ask this question, you know, God, is there any way out? Uh, is there any, any loophole that we can exploit? Our third question, do we really have to? I might imagine asking that question like a, like a whiny kid who's just been told that they have to wear a tie on Easter Sunday. Do we really have to? And the answer to that is an obvious one, reading this passage. Yes. Okay, we'll move on. I'm praying I'm going to get us out of here. No. One thing I really just can't get over in this passage is the reaction of the young ruler after Jesus tells him what he must do. Uh, You can look there in verse 22. The young ruler says this, at this the man's, or the young ruler did this. At this the man's face fell, he went away sad because he had great wealth. The man here immediately walks away. He doesn't ask a clarifying question, he doesn't object, he simply um, walks away. But Christ's statement later shows his true intent when he gave instruction to the man. It's this in verse 27. Jesus looked at the disciples and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are impossible with God. Christ here knows that for the man to give up everything he owns is an impossibility by himself. To approach Christ with a full dependence on who Jesus is is an impossibility by himself, by ourselves. But there's four words, but not with God. Christ knew that by ourselves we cannot overcome our own selfishness and greed. But it's not an impossibility with God. So what Christ asks this man for is simply his willingness. His willingness to trust God with everything he has. To to give it away and approach Jesus with a childlike dependence. He's asking not only for the man to realize the worthlessness of his possessions, but also to show kindness and love to those who have much less. And this is the way that the early church took care of each other and took care of the poor around them. It wasn't an option for the early disciples, for the early church in their walk with Christ. They gave up everything and they established the church. And then they taught others to do the same. But somehow in the last 2,000 years, we've searched this passage for loopholes rather than looking to God with a willingness to do what He commands here. I love the way that um, in the New Beacon Bible Commentary, Kent, on Mark, Kent Brower puts it this way, and it's going to be on the screen. He said this, There is a nagging suspicion that those who are concerned about how to avoid selling all and giving the proceeds to the poor are precisely those for whom this challenge is most pertinent. This passage is clear. We cannot serve both God and something else. Our our divided loyalties to, to money, to power, to sex, to possessions is not compatible with a love for God and a love for our neighbor i got to tell you this morning, I'd, I'd be interested to see what Jesus' response to the man would have been if he would have just had a, just a slightly different reaction. Maybe if he would have just looked at him funny instead of walking away. 
Because from what we see there in verse 27, Jesus knew that the man couldn't do what he had asked. But what if Christ, here in this passage, asked for a mile in the hope that the man would just give an inch? It was just the willingness that Christ was looking for. The willingness to remove this tension between wealth and discipleship. The willingness to get rid of everything in the way of his relationship with God. So why this passage? Why do we even go back to it? If it makes us feel uncomfortable, why do we read about it in church? <laughs> that was a joke. None of y'all laughed. <laughs> We've forgotten how to live sacrificially. I spent a lot of time thinking about this sermon and grappling with this passage. And we all should. It's tough. And what I can't get over is the fact that I don't think I've lived a single day of my life the way that Christ has called us to live in this passage. It's clear that we are concerned only for ourselves. And me too. My hard work earned my money. They can't take away my rights, even if it infringes on the rights of someone else. And if they move in across the street, what's going to happen to my property value? I give a portion of my money to the church. Gallup, and I'm sure some of you have already seen it, some of you have texted me about it, a renowned company known for accurate polling and surveying, in the last couple of weeks released a poll that they took over the last few years on church membership. And what they found in their poll is that from 2018 and 2020, this was pre-pandemic, when comparing those numbers to 2008 and 2010, in the last 10 years, those who consider themselves members of a church in America has decreased in every single age group and every single demographic. And for the first time, it dipped, church membership dipped below 50% of the population in America. Now, this wasn't just because of those millennials. They found that church membership was down in every generation from 2010, including baby boomers and Generation X. It decreased for men and for, for women, for college graduates and non-college graduates, for married and, and unmarried, for, for Republicans, for independents and for Democrats, for conservatives, for moderates and for liberals, it, it, and it decreased for, for evangelicals, Protestants, and Catholics. And we could say that it's their fault. That responsibility for the secularization of America and the world lies at the feet of Washington, D.C., that it lies at the feet of, of New York City, of, of Chicago, and in Los, Ange Las Vegas. Or we could examine ourselves. We could hold ourselves up to the example of Christ and realize that it's because of us. We've taken countercultural to mean that we hold the world to our own standards, that we critique and condemn. And what people see there is a group of people who claim to honor Christ but rarely acts like Him. Really, Christ called us to be countercultural, not by condemning the world, but by being a sacrificial example of love. So, where there is, is greed surrounding us, we give up our wealth to the poor and the hungry. 
where there is is selfishness surrounding us, we put the rights and the well-being of others in front of our own. And when there is pride surrounding us, we look to only glorify the one who loves us so that we can love others. But when I look at Christ and I look at myself, some days I don't see a lot of similarities. I see selfishness and pride and I see greed. But today, like he did with the rich young ruler, Christ looks at me and he looks at us with love. Jesus was human just like the rest of us. He knows that what he's calling us to do isn't easy, but it is necessary. Because only when we can approach God, when we can approach Christ, when we can approach the throne with a childlike dependency on it, with nothing, only then can we begin to know what it means to follow Christ, to love others the way that we have been loved. So I have one more question, not from the passage, but for us. What are we willing to give up? Because if it's nothing, or rather if it's anything less than everything, then we will be the first to be last. Verse 31, But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Let's pray. God, it really feels like you're swinging a hammer today, Lord. God, we've, we've, we, I, I myself have avoided this passage for so long or interpreted it or looked for a loophole, for a way, a way out, God. But God, this morning I, I'm, I'm, I'm comforted by your words there that for us it's impossible but not with God. All things are possible with you. Lord, and this morning we recognize that we are weak God, that we are, we are not enough to be able to live up to this calling on our own, Lord. But God, where you ask us for a mile, this morning I pray that we can just start with an inch. God, give us the, the strength, the power, the willingness to just give an inch. God, this morning I pray that we don't walk out of here and, and forget about this passage and forget about Mark 10, verses 17 through 31, Lord. I pray that this hangs with us. God, I pray that, that, that we dwell on it, Lord. I, I pray that as we're going throughout our daily lives, that you bring this into the forefront of our mind, that you remind us, God, uh, what are we willing to give up here in this moment to love those around us, to give it all to you? God, we thank you for your presence. We thank you for the powerful work that you're doing in us, God, to each and every day just make us look a little bit more like Jesus. Just a little bit. We pray that you'll bring us back safely together here next week. We ask things in your name. Amen. Love you guys.